0: first City Life sermon here in the new space. Come on, huh? Yeah. I can tell by that applause some of you are more excited than others, but that's okay. It's all right. That's my job to change that feeling in you, right? So I just want to thank Pastor David for jumping in last week at the last minute. He did an amazing job. I've been under the weather this week, so yeah. Thank you. It was great when I was at home and uh, recovering from the, I didn't even know I had the flu yet, but I'm going to tell that story in just a minute, but the, uh, I get a text uh, last Saturday night from Ryan Nicholson saying, hey, you want to watch the service? I'm like, I didn't even know that was possible, Right. And uh, and so the, sure enough, they were able to stream the service, and uh, I was able to watch it through a YouTube channel. And so we're working on that technology because we want to make that available. Uh, church members that deploy, that are military, to be able to dial in and to be able to come to service with us on a Saturday night. So uh, so anyways, we're excited. We're not ready to launch that yet, but I got a little test for that last weekend. So yeah, so so last Friday I was feeling pretty poor, and so I ducked into Pastor David's office Friday morning and said, "You might want to get a sermon ready just." Just in case I don't bounce back. And so sure enough, on Saturday, I was feeling pretty rough. And then I started to feel a little bit better on Sunday and thought maybe I'm coming out of it, but then woke up Monday morning, like, maybe I had Ebola or something. And so I was like, Vanessa, I think we better go to the doctor. So I've been going to the same doctor for years, love this practice. And so my story is not a reflection on them, but a reflection of whatever this flu strain that's going around. So they, you know, they test you, they do the swab thing, and, and uh, I kid you not, I'm sitting in the, in the doctor's office in the chair in the corner and, and uh, just kind of reading some, some, some news on my phone, and I see the door crack open. I'm not making any of this up. The nurse practitioner has on a mask, and she barely gets her face in the door. Says, Mr. Michaud, you've tested positive for the flu. We're going to get you your paperwork in just a minute. And then backed up and closed the door. <laughs> and I thought, what kind of flu is this? In the 757 this year, right? So she comes back in, and she puts a mask for me on the exam table, backs up until so I get up and put the mask on, listens to my heart, listens to my breathing, immediately goes to the sink. I kid you not. She's washing her hands. This is what she says. When we bring you your paperwork, we want you to go directly to your car. We don't want you to stop to talk to anybody. And if you have any family members that begin to show symptoms, you call us. We will test them in the parking lot. I was like, whoa! I think I'm going to die, right? So, that's why I'm just doing fist bumps tonight, not trying to share any, any of my germs, so, but thank you for praying, And so, but it's been a, been a rough week, and so any of you that, uh, that have had the flu, and uh, my heart goes out to you, and uh, I've never gotten a flu shot, but I'm going to be getting one next year, no doubt. So anyway, so hey, if, um, if you are new to our church, we've got a table that is set up down the hall, uh, for our sponsorships. We've adopted a village in the Dominican Republic. We work through Food for the Hungry, and we've made a 10-year commitment uh, to this particular village. We've done trips there. Even if you're not ever able to go on a trip, you can be involved in helping to, to uh, bring this uh, community to a place of self-reliance, both practically and then to also the work that spiritually needs to be done in that community, and so uh, our family sponsors a child. It's thirty-five dollars a month, and uh, I think we've got ten sponsorships that we want to do. And so I'm trusted that if you're not sponsoring a child, that you're going to find your way to that table uh, down by the uh, information center and uh, and stop to talk to somebody there. And then and this precious uh, young lady is available for sponsorship too. So I'm going to put that right here uh, at the front, and if somebody wants to grab that into the, the service, you feel free and take it down and talk to. Rebecca, and uh, and she'll get you signed up. So, well, tonight is our first welcome weekend, and uh, and so I brought one of my uh, my favorite keepsakes. This is a level that belonged to my grandfather on my mother's side, and uh, he was a carpenter by trade. and And and, and sometimes when when uh, uh, I'm praying about something, I'll, I'll I'll just I'll get this thing in my hand, right? Because I think about all the work that he must have done with this tool. And especially when I'm praying for the church, I'll grab this. I keep it in my office, keep it on the bookcase. It's still true. It's still level both ways. It's cool, isn't it, to have something like this that's been a part of your family. The, the reason why I hold this so many times when I'm praying for the church is because of the purpose that this serves, right? If if you're building something like when we were building out this platform, making sure that it's 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 on a level plain, when I'm praying for the church, we want our church to be on level with what God expects of us, right? And so for your prayer life, if, if sometimes you find yourself a little bit, uh, I don't know if you use the word bored, but uninspired in your prayer life, you, you got to go to places, pray in different places, get things in your hand that have prophetic imagery in them and hold on to them that helps to begin to stir your faith. And I'm sharing this with you tonight because for our welcome weekend that we do all throughout, we do these throughout, uh, throughout the year, every year, it's to help you, who's, if you're new to the church, understand who we are and what we're about. And so the verse that I'm going to share with you tonight that we're going to be working out of is in Matthew chapter 13. It's a leveling verse for us. As as leaders, we want to always come and take who we are as a church and and compare it to this verse and to see if we're on plane with what God is expecting of us. It's Matthew 13. It's beginning in verse 52. It says, And Jesus said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of household who brings out of his treasures things both new and old. Father, as we dig into this verse tonight, I pray, God, that, that you would continue by the power of your Holy Spirit to show us as a church how we can be on level with what this verse says that you expect of any house that wants to be your house. That when, when, when we talk about this being the house of God, Father, that, that it means that, that, that some things should identify it. And we want those things that identify it to be the things that you long for it to look like so that it's a reflection of you. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said amen. So to part of this concept of our welcome weekend is that we talk a little bit about who we are as a church for the, 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 the message. And then for the next three weeks, we offer a class called Discovering City Life that Vanessa teaches. And we're going to be teaching that in the chapel. And so if you're new to the church, or maybe you're not new to the church, but you feel like God's asking you to take another step of commitment with making this your church home, then you're going to want to, for the next three weeks during the sermon time, there'll be a slide that dismisses you and you can go down and be a part of the discovering city life class and you 're going to get packets and information and question and answer and on the third week uh, then we 're going to uh, stay after the service we have pizza for you and your kids and uh, and it 's just a great time and so if you 're interested in that, I hope you take us up on it so so this verse matthew thirteen fifty two there 's four parts to this verse now if you 've been a part of our church, you have heard us talk about this verse before. And I'm going to just focus in on the last one, but I do want to mention the first three. It says, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple, meaning that when you become a devoted follower of Christ and find a church to call home, that church should be a place that can walk you on a journey of discipleship that begins to bring transformation to your life that every church that's a house of God should have a a, a commitment to discipling people and it should have a plan and a process. And we're gonna talk about that in the Discovering City Life, but ours is called Praxis. It's the same name that we gave to our school of leadership with Praxis Nine. And it's based on four numbers, the one, the six, and the 12, and the 24. So at at City Life, we've got an intentional plan that we want to put in place in your life that helps you grow into the person that God has called you to be. It also says here that It's it's like a head of a household, right? That too many people they come to church and they don't have a sense of ownership of that church. And we never want that to be part of the culture here at City Life. It's like when you go away on a vacation, maybe you're staying in a hotel, it's nice, isn't it? You leave and you come back and then all of a sudden miraculously your bed's made, the bathroom's clean, maybe you're clothes have been folded and neatly placed and you're thinking to yourself like where is that at my house and the answer to that well that's supposed to be you at your house because you own your house and so when you're in a place where you own you're supposed to have a sense of responsibility to make sure the things that that need to be done get done when you come to church when you have a church that you call home that that's part of what this verse is about it's about ownership Right? It's not about wanting to, to be like a hotel stay where you're able to show up and everything's prepared for you and then you get to go home and then somebody else does all the work. It, that You should have a sense of this is my church. How can I be a part to make sure that everything that needs to be done is getting done? And then he talks about here that there's a house, it's both treasures new and old. Every church has to understand the difference between new treasures and old treasures. If, if a church doesn't understand the difference between new treasures and old treasures, then sometimes they get stuck in the past. And so for us as a church, we, we say that, that we're going to have treasures that are new for us, meaning that, that they're things that are important to us, things that inspire us, but we recognize that they're time-bound and might just be for a season. We joke all the time, if we're singing these same songs five years from now, something's gone terribly wrong for us. Music for us is a generational tether. Our music belongs to the next generation. And so our music for us, worship is an old treasure, but the kind of worship that we do is a new treasure. Does that make sense? So churches have to understand the difference between a new treasure and an old treasure. New treasures change. Old treasures are values that define you and that those things are constant. And so where I wanna spend our time tonight And moving into next week is I want to talk about three old treasures that defined us as a church. Three treasures that are never going to change for us. Three treasures that we're trying to instill in the hearts of the next generation so that one day when we've passed on into eternity and the people that are leading the City Life Church and the generation that comes behind us, that they understand that these three treasures must always be a part of who we are. And they're simply this, that he's good, that you matter, and that church rocks, right? He's good, you matter, and that church rocks. And we're gonna do that last one next week. There's a little bit of a play on words, but those first two, it's about the goodness of God and about the potential of people. So let's talk about this first one, about he's good, the goodness of God. Psalm 27, 13, this one is coming out of the New King James Version. It says, I would have lost heart if I had not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Let me share that with you again. I would have lost heart if I had not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. If if you're looking for a verse to memorize this summer, pick that one. Pick a translation that resonates with you, that you can understand, but you want to have some verses in your mind and in your heart that you can speak over your life and over your circumstances that remind you that God is always good, regardless of your circumstance, regardless of your situation, that you want to have a sense of hope and a sense of confidence in the goodness of God. This is one of my favorite quotes. It's by Abraham Heschel. It comes from his book, The Prophet. He says, an idea or theory of God can easily become a substitute for God. Let me say that again. An idea or a theory of God can easily become a substitute for God. Impressive to the mind, when God as a living reality is absent from the soul. To the prophets, God was overwhelmingly real and shatteringly present. To the prophets, God was over- Overwhelmingly real and shatteringly present. One of the reasons why God is good is because He's generous with His presence. One of the reasons why He is good is because He's generous with His presence. He doesn't hide from us. He doesn't ration his presence out to us like we're in some lifeboat adrift and there's only so much of him to go around. And so he gives you a little bit and he gives this next person over here. Maybe if somebody's noble, they're saying, well, I know that there's not enough to go around, so I'm going to let my portion go to someone else. I think so many times we think that's what God is doing for us, but that's not who he is. He's generous with his presence. It's one of the reasons why he's so good is that he wants us to be in his presence. He wants us to have a sense of confidence that he gets excited when you show up to be awakened to who he is in the room. He he wants you to live your life with an expectation that in your heart, not in your mind, but in your heart, you can have a feeling of knowing him as your best and closest friend. Listen to these verses in Genesis 3, beginning in verse 8 through 12. It says, When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, and so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And this is a great moment of leadership here. The man replied, It was the woman that you gave to me, right? Way to be a good husband, right? There's a double blaming here. It's her fault and it's your fault because you put her in my life, right? Some of you are laughing because you've had that conversation with God and it's not good. It was the woman that you gave me, it's a woman that you gave me who gave me the fruit. And I ate it. I like to read that verse. When we were talking about God because God does not hide from us. We're the ones who hide. If you have a feeling inside of you of being distant from God, I, I, I want to say it lovingly but strongly. It's not. A, God doesn't have a problem. God's presence is always readily available for us. He's generous with His presence. It's one of the reasons why He's good. And one of the problems that we have in our humanity, we inherit it from Adam and Eve in the beginning of time, is that our natural inclination is, want to, is to hide from Him because of the shame that we carry because of the memories of our past, or the shame that we're carrying because decisions that we're making today. We want to be a church that helps people to understand that God does not hide from us. And we want to be a church that helps people learn how you can stop being a hider yourself and to be a person that, that with great expectation and great confidence that you pursue the presence of God. I remember in the, in the summer of nineteen. Ninety, which was the the year that the Holy Spirit really began to tug on my heart. I was raised in the church, but but never really wanted to have anything to do with it. I pretended to have something to do with it. I was one of those teenagers that lived a life of duplicity, and so I was one person when when I was with my family, and then I was somebody else that was when I was with my friends. And so when I went away to college, it was the first time that I felt like I didn't have to pretend anymore. And unfortunately, I, I chose the wrong person to be. And so that just began a Four years of just just ugly living, and so when I got out of school and I was thinking about going to graduate school, I'd moved back in with my parents to try to save money. And church was important to them, and uh, so just out of respect for them, if I was going to live in their house, I thought you know I should really just go to church with them on on Sunday. And so, but it, it was a church much like this. You know, you really felt God's presence when you were there, and that I'm telling you made me uncomfortable. I got to the point where I couldn't even be in the worship part of the service. I would literally break into a sweat because I just I felt the conviction of my heart was so strong. And so I would time it. And so I would come in. The, the, the worship usually lasted about 30 minutes like we do. And so I would time it so that I could come into the service during the, during the very last song and I could slip in. Uh, inconspicuously, and so maybe people thought I had been there the whole time, and then I would just kind of grip my chair, right, through the whole sermon, and so I'm going to talk more about something that God did in my life that summer at the end of the service, but if that's you, I know what that feels like. Maybe that was you tonight already, that David gets up at the end of the wrap-up, and he's talking about how amazing it feels to be in God's presence, and maybe some of you are thinking it doesn't feel so amazing to me, because there's a holiness to his presence. And when we come into his presence, sometimes we begin to realize that there's things in our lives that should not be there. It's sometimes we realize that we're, we're becoming a person that God didn't create us to be, and we feel that tension, and we, we, we feel that tug. And in that moment, the worst thing that you can do is to withdraw from him. Because I guarantee you this, he's not going to withdraw from you. In those moments, it's a great gift that he gives to you. As uncomfortable as it feels, is that that's his way of helping you sense that something needs to change. And I don't care how fun you think your life is, whatever you're doing now. Can I just tell you, you were settling for last that God wants to protect you from mediocrity. You might say, well, these things that I'm doing are fun. These things, I'm having a great time doing it. They feel good, and they probably do. But what I'm saying to you, it feels a lot less good than what it could be if you would begin to embrace the life that God has for you. It's the biggest lie that the devil gives to the world is that he tricks you into a mediocre life. Most of you aren't going to go out of here and rob a bank or become one of the FBI's most wanted, right? You're not going to do these egregious things. That's not going to be your journey. For most of you, I, I hope none of you. If the devil were to put those things into your life, you would say, I'm not doing that. But what he does put into your life is the things that he knows that... He can get you to latch on to that, keeps you from the wonder of the adventure that life has for you as a devoted follower of Christ. And one of the ways that you begin to learn who God's created you to be is to want to be in his presence. And the devil knows that, which is why he tries to keep you out of it. He wants you, the devil, wants you to live a life of a hider like Adam and Eve. And what we want to say as a church is don't hide from God. Find something in your heart that says, I long to be in his presence. You're never going to hear us use language like, we want God to come or we want him to show up. We we don't need God to show up. He's already here. He's everywhere all the time. God's saying, I'm waiting on you to show up. He's been waiting on you to show up in a moment just like this that he wants you to find his presence. He wants you to know that he's generous with his presence and that you don't have to hide from him. Listen to these verses. This comes out of Hebrews chapter four. I like these verses. So then since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness for he faced all the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Listen to this one. This comes out of Psalm 26.8. It's a short little verse. I love your sanctuary, Lord, the place where your glorious presence dwells. I love your sanctuary, Lord, the place where your glorious presence dwells. We have 12 pathways that we teach here at City Life. You can get them on our website. If you're new to the church, we're going to talk about them in discovering City Life. But one of them is called gathering and it's what you're doing tonight. There is something happens when the people of God gather together and we begin to worship and we begin to pray and we begin to invest in relationships with one another and we begin to open up God's word and to dig into his scripture. You are awakened to his presence. And we want to be a church that creates in you a desire to want to be awakened to his presence all the time, to not be a hider, to not move from one one place of hiding to another, but that every day of your life, whether you're in a place like this or whether you're by yourself, that that you're going to learn the things that you can do to awaken your humanity to the presence of God in your life. It's one of the reasons why God is so good is because he loves when you're around him. It's one of the reasons why as parents, we talk about this in our parenting class, one of the worst things that we can do as a parent is to make our, create a feeling in our child that we don't want to be around them. Maybe your parents created that feeling in you all growing up and you know the pain that is. God will never create that feeling in you. God always wants you to know that he loves for you to be in his presence and that he holds nothing back from you in those moments He's generous with his presence. That's one of the reasons why he's good. He's also good because he makes his voice unmistakable. He's good because he's generous with his presence, and he's good because his voice is unmistakable. What's the most common description of the voice of God? What is it? Somebody, somebody shout it out. Yeah, still small voice. How many people have heard that? The voice of God is a still small voice. How many people, right? Hey, and Can I just say, that story in the Bible of Elijah, can I just tell you, it's one of the only times in the Bible that talks about God's voice being still and small. But it's probably one of the most popular voices to be taught in the church of what God's voice Feels like, and I think that that's not good because the rest of the Bible says something very different about God's voice. Are there times where His voice is still and small? It can be if that's what you need from Him, but the rest of the Bible talks about the voice of God being loud, it talks about the voice of God just being overwhelming. It's when David came down from doing the wrap up, I said, Were you? Were you in my notes while I wasn't looking, right? Because he's talking about God's voice. And when he was talking about that, I'm thinking somebody needs to learn that tonight. Because if that's what God's speaking to him, and then that's what we're going to talk about. Some of you need to know that his voice is supposed to be unmistakable to you. Listen to these verses. Some of you have never heard these verses before. Sometimes we get locked in on a certain idea about God, and then that that becomes our, our, our filter, and then we miss so much of who God is. Psalm 29, verses 3 through 9. Listen to this. The voice of the Lord echoes above the sea. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty sea. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord splits the mighty cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon's mountains skip like a calf, and he makes Mount Mount Hermon leap like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with bolts of lightning. The voice of the Lord makes the barren wilderness quake, and the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists mighty oaks and strips the forests bare. In his temple, everyone shouts glory. I love that one. My dad passed away a year ago this past November, and when he was in church, whenever he heard something he liked, that's what he shouted, glory. i got to work that one into my repertoire. Psalm 50, 1 through 6. I'm just going to give you a bunch of them. Psalm 50, 1 through 6. The Lord, the mighty one, is God, and he has spoken. He has summoned all humanity from where the sun rises to where it sets. The implication there means that no matter where you are, when God calls, it's so loud that you can't deny it and you come running. From Mount Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines in glorious radiance. Our God approaches and he is not silent. Fire devours, every, devours everything in his way, and a great storm rages around him. It doesn't sound very still and small, does it? He calls on the heavens above and on earth below to witness the judgment of his people. Bring my faithful people to me. Those who made a covenant with me by giving sacrifices, then let the heavens proclaim his justice for God himself will be the judge. Here's one more, John 10, 3-5. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, speaking of Jesus, and the sheep, they recognize his voice, and they come to him. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out, and after he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They will run from him because they don't know the stranger's voice. God is good because he's generous with his presence, and his voice is unmistakable. We want to be a church that creates a confidence in you that God wants to be around you, and we want to be a church that teaches you how to awaken yourself to his presence through things like gathering and scripture and prayer and worship and relationship and serving, all of those things. We call them pathways because they take us somewhere, and one of the places that it takes us to is into his presence, and we want to teach you how to put those practices in your life so that you don't live your life with an idea idea of God, but that His presence is overwhelmingly real and shadowingly present in your life. We want to be a church that helps you to learn how to recognize His voice. If this is true, which I believe that it is, then God's voice should not be hard to hear. If God's voice is hard to hear, it's just like His presence. There's not a God problem, we have a heart problem. And so part of your journey is to say to yourself, "Self, I want to hear the voice of God in my life in an unmistakable way, and I want to know it so well that when it's a stranger, when it's the devil himself trying to trick me and to lead me astray, I'm not ever going to follow that voice because I know it's not my God." How much time did you spend this week in prayer? How much time did you spend this week reading the Bible? How much time did you spend just listening to worship music and thinking about God and having a conversation with Him, right? And we could keep going down the list. And I think probably for some of you you would say, I didn't do that much at all this week. And then my answer to be that's why God's voice always feels still and small and silent to you. God's voice is out there, raging with a volume that's louder than the oceans, but it's our responsibility to position ourselves to hear. And we want to be a church that helps you learn how to do that. He's generous with his presence. His voice is unmistakable. It's one of the reasons why we're passionate about the goodness of God. All right, let's do one more. You want to do one more? Let's talk about you matter. You matter. He's good. And you matter. He's good, and you matter. So let me tell you a little story about a young lady that that our family has come to love. We've known her for a long time. Her name's Letitia. She lives in Richmond with Vanessa and I met in, and, uh, uh, in the late 1990s. I was living in the inner city of Richmond. Uh, our family was operating a homeless uh, ministry. We uh, did the Sunday morning public breakfast and public church service for the homeless in Monroe Park uh, right there at VCU. And, and, and so I'm living in Barton Heights, which is a little community that's outside one of the major projects of, uh, of the city of, of Richmond. And when Vanessa and I got married, uh, one of the things that we began to do is we began to reach out to the children in the neighborhood I was kind of withdrawn from that being a single guy living by myself right I wasn't going to have kids in my home or anything like that but once we got married we realized we that we were going to be able to be an oasis to children in our in our community and so we had kids in our house in our yard all the time and uh, they these kids grew up rough prostitutes and drug dealers on our street corner in this neighborhood It it was it was it was a tough place It's a tough place for kids to grow up. And there was one family that lived in some Section 8 housing across the street from us, and there was probably about four or five adults and about six or seven kids that lived in this little two-bedroom apartment. And this was one of the families that we had started to get to know. And late one night, I think it was probably in the summer of night, late 1997, there was a knock on our door in the middle of the night and the mom was standing at the door with about six kids and said, we've got to uh, go to the emergency room and, uh, and we don't have anyone to watch our kids. Would you watch them for us? And we said, absolutely. And so these kids, they came into our house and we got some blankets and put down on the floor and got them all. They were all pre-elementary school or younger, or early elementary school or younger, and, uh, and so they slept at our house that night, and then when they got home from the hospital the next day, we were able to reconnect them with our family, but we knew that that was a moment where God was saying something to us of all the kids that you're really connecting with in this neighborhood. We took them to church with us. They went down to the park with us to minister to the homeless. We had a little 15-passenger van that we would bring all these kids from the neighborhood to church with us week in and week out. And and we knew this family, God was knitting our heart together with them for some reason. We didn't know exactly why, but we knew we were supposed to focus some attention on this one particular family. It was five siblings, and then they had a cousin. were the six. And so we remember that we decided that uh, Vanessa's church uh, uh, that she grew up in in Williamsburg, which is now Life Church but was in Christian Life Center, did a picnic that we used to do with them. That's the church that planted us. And, uh, and so that was before we were connected to City Life. And, and we said, let's take some of these kids with us to the church picnic, right? And we had a, a little Dodge Stratus. It was a little five-seater, so we could only take three of the kids. So we set these kids down, and we said, hey, you know, to, to be fair, we're going to put everybody's name in a hat. We're going to draw your name out of a hat, and the three that we draw will be the three that we take, and then we'll take the other three next year. And so, right, they're nodding their head, okay, right, that's fair. And, and, uh, and so we drew out the three names, and, and, uh, and, and so uh, as we were driving away, the other three kids began to throw rocks at our car. I kid you not. We we were priming away. I'm like, they're hurling rocks at our car, and it's banging off the rear window. What have we done, right? These are tough kids. And I'm thinking, I don't know if I want to come home, right? They're going to. Kill us in our sleep because we didn't take them to the picnic. I mean, these kids—they're tough kids. They're tough kids, and so we stayed with them. We walked with them, and and uh, I remember their the the day that their mom passed, and and uh, and how they had to go into the custody of their of their grandmother, and they just—it was a hard life, a hard life. Letitia was the first child in this family to ever graduate from high school. I remember being at her graduation. Her mom had. Had had died and had passed since then, and and Vanessa and I showed up down at the Virginia Landmark Theater to celebrate with her, and there was just you know thousands of people there for this inner city high school graduation, and and uh, and at the end of the graduation, we all came outside and we were standing across the street. You know, every student is looking for one thing, right? They're looking for their family. They come out and they make eye contact and they rush into this crowd of people, and everybody's cheering for them. We see Letitia come out and she's looking for her family, and nobody's there. Grandmother didn't show up. None of her siblings showed up. Her aunt didn't show up. All the people that she was friends with, Vanessa and I just began to cry as we were standing there watching that from afar. And So we rushed in, and in that moment, we became her family to her, took her out to dinner, but you could see the pain that was on her face. How could they not come? Broken people do broken things. Broken people do broken things. I'll never forget the day Vanessa worked at Capital One. We got a call from uh, the the community development organization that was an arm of Capital One. And they said, we want to scholarship somebody to college. Do you know anybody? And we said, oh, we know somebody. And her name's Letitia. And so she made great grades in school. Again, first child to graduate high school. She goes through the application process. She gets picked. And they paid four years of tuition for her to go to Virginia Union University. Books, living expenses. Not only did she become the first child to graduate from high school, she became the first person in her family to get a college degree. Come on. And you might say, Fred, I hear that story and it pulls at my heartstrings and I can't imagine what it was like for that family, but I cannot relate to her in any way. And what I would say to you, you are her, not in a practical way, but in a spiritual way. The ground that she covered from that little girl that was throwing rocks at our car as we were driving to a church picnic because her name didn't get drawn out of a hat to the girl that walked an aisle to get a college degree. When you think about the gap, are you with me? The ground she covered that was transformed and changed her life. Can I just tell you, that's the journey that God wants you to go on your spiritual life. No no, no matter how much of a spiritual giant you might think that you are, it's like the book of Revelation. We're all blind and wretched and naked and miserable. In a spiritual sense, no matter how far you've come, we're all this kid throwing rocks at a car because we're selfish in our heart of hearts, and what God has for us is to become like Christ, and the distance that we've got to journey seems impossible, but what I would say to you is that you matter to God, and He wants you to cover that ground, and we want to be a church that helps you get there. We want to be a church that helps you see where you are today in your spiritual journey and to give you a vision for the place that God wants to take you to and to be a church that walks with you on that path. So that one day when you make that kind of progress, because you can make that kind of progress, that you're going to have the same sense of accomplishment that Letitia did. And in those moments where we celebrate that sense of accomplishment, you know what God says to you and to me? Let's get back to work because you've got more ground to cover. There should never be a place where we find ourselves content with the progress that we've made in our spiritual life. He says to you and to me, be like Jesus. We're not going to get there all the way, but can it it not just be that every day of our life that we say to ourselves, I want to close the gap. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Listen to John 1, 44 to 48. Philip from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus. The son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth exclaimed Nathaniel can anything good come from Nazareth come and see for yourself Philip replied and as they approached Jesus said now here is a genuine son of Israel a man of complete integrity how do you know about me Nathaniel asked Jesus replied I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you I love that Jesus says that he's a person of complete integrity, even though he's just made a racial statement. You track it with me? I I love how, how what Jesus speaks over Philip is that he's a person of complete integrity, even though he's just demonstrated himself to have some issues with bigotry. Because he looks down on this other city and the people that are from there. And he says, how could anything good come from? Don't tell me the Messiah came from Nazareth. Nobody good lives in that place. looks down on them. There's a sense of arrogance about him. But what does Jesus say of him? He's a man of complete integrity. You know why that is? Because Jesus speaks over you, not who you are, but who he sees that you're going to become Your reputation with God is not based on your past. It's not based on your present. It's based on your future and who he knows he's going to lead you to be. That you and I are just like Philip sitting under the tree. And under the tree is the place that we're at that God doesn't want us to stay. And he sees us. He describes us. He speaks over us the person that we're going to become. You matter to him. Your life matters to him. Your journey matters to him not because you're going to do something for him, but because he loves you. Just like those verses that Tara, right? It's as though we've been sitting in a creative room scripting this service for months, and we haven't done any of that. That verse that Tara spoke about, the unconditional love of God, that's the moment that we're in right now. That's how much you matter to him. He cherishes you. His heart aches with love for you. He's good and you matter. First Samuel 16, 18, one of the servants said to Saul, one of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem is a talented harp player. And not only that, he is a brave warrior, a man of war, and has good judgment. He is also a fine-looking young man. And the Lord is with them. I discovered this verse when we were at the Elam Conference several weeks ago, and we were up there with our staff team, and we were at lunch one day, and and uh, I talked about this several weeks ago with you guys, but I want to talk about it again because of where it fits here in the in the message, and and I was talking with them. I said, "Have you guys ever done any studying on this verse?" And I've studied it some, but still not extensively. But I, I've I've done a little bit, and 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 the reason why this verse jumps out to me is because David has not yet done anything worth mentioning. He's not slain Goliath yet. He's not done all the things or any of the things that would cause someone to describe him this way, right? He's just, he's basically a nobody. And what is said of him? He is a brave warrior, a man of war, and has good judgment. But yet he's not yet been a warrior. But yet he's not yet been a man of war. They don't have any experience with him yet as to why they would say he's good judgment. This is the moment where he's applying, right, where where he's being recruited to become a part of Saul's court, but he's a stranger to these people. I think this is a prophetic moment in the Bible, and I think it's here because the Bible is trying to teach us something. This is what God says about you. He sees you for who you're going to become. And he wants you to hear him speaking those things over your life time and time again so that hope and faith begin to rise up in your heart so you can get a vision for who you're supposed to be and find the courage to begin to run after it. He's good because he's generous with his presence, because his voice is unmistakable. And when we find ourselves in his presence with our ear attuned to his voice, then we begin to realize that we matter to him. And he begins to speak over us words of life that give us a vision for this person, even though we might be Philip under the tree. i invite the worship team to come back up. Let me share these two thoughts with you. You matter long before you do anything that matters. Let me say that again. You matter long before you do anything that matters. And your reputation with God, as we already said, is based on your future and not your past. So I remember in the summer of nineteen ninety on one of those weeks where I was trying to sneak into the service a little bit late because of how the worship awakened me to God's presence and it made me uncomfortable. And and it was during this the last song of this worship set here at Mechanics at Mechanicsville Christian Center, the 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 church where all my formative years as a Christian happened that uh, there was a, an, an, a person on the platform, his name was Charlie Bevels. Some of you have heard this story before. He was a, a former FBI agent. He was about six foot five. He probably weighed about 250 pounds, was rock solid, always wore a suit. I could never figure that out. And Now I think it's because he probably was carrying about three different weapons on him, right, at all times. But he had the heart that was so tender, And they brought the service to a pause, and Charlie had something that he wanted to share. And so uh, because of that, they wouldn't let anybody come into the sanctuary because they didn't want to disturb that moment. And so I was literally standing in the threshold of the door, and there was an usher that was standing there saying, if you could just wait just a minute before you come. I'm standing right on the threshold in the doorway, and there's Charlie up there with his eyes closed. Doesn't even see that I'm over there. It's probably 500 or so seat auditorium. It's packed out, and, and Charlie begins to weep a little bit, and it's just the tenderness of the moment. He says, "This is what he says. What What else do you need me to do for you?" Speaking as if it was God's voice, and it was. What What What, what do you What do you need to see me do to cause you to give your heart to me? Tell me how many lives you want to see me change. A thousand, a hundred, ten, one. It doesn't matter. just tell me what you need. How long are you going to stand on the threshold? I'm melting like wax right where I am, right? Like I'm going to die today. The creator of the universe is talking to me. How much longer are you going to stand on the fence? And he just keeps going on and on and on and on. And in that moment, my heart just began to break. Now, I didn't give my heart to Jesus that day, but it came a few weeks later. It was in a service just like this. God began to work on my heart, and later on that afternoon, I was driving in my 1984 Honda Prelude 5-speed down Laburnum Avenue. sunroof was open and the windows down, and I just said, God, I don't know where this is going to lead, but I believe that you have a plan for my life and I've been running from you my whole entire life. I wanna stop running from you and I wanna run to you. I just prayed a simple prayer that day of saying, Jesus, I believe that you're the son of God, that you died for my sins and I'm gonna live for you. That was in December of 1990 and that began my journey as a devoted follower of Christ. I felt like, a lot like that, child in the story of just coming out of an ugly past but on that day God began to give me just a sense in my heart that he had something for me to do you know what I felt in that moment? that he was good and that I mattered and I hope that you're feeling that right now that he's not just a God but he's your God and that he loves you with an unspeakable love and that you matter to him you matter to him I'm just going to invite you to bow your head with me right where you are. I just want to create a moment of privacy just right here. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else that you don't want to do. But if you're in this room tonight and you can say, Fred, I can relate a lot to your story because I know that I've been running from God for a long time and I've never made a vow of devotion to Christ like that story that you just told. If you're here and you look back into the story of your life and you can't find that moment like I found in my little Honda on Laburnum Avenue in 1990. If, if, I'm just going to invite you to raise your hand. If you're just here and you're saying, I've never made a vow of devotion to Christ, I'm just going to invite you to slip your hand up wherever you are. i are not going to linger in this moment. Again, I'm not going to do anything that would embarrass you, but I'm just going to invite you to slip your hand up. Just slip your hand up where you are. So let me ask another question. How many of you, you're here tonight and you would say, Fred, I've heard that God is good, but I'm having a hard time in my heart believing that to be true. I'm going to invite you to raise your hand wherever you are. Just slip up your hand. You know it in your head, but in your heart, sometimes it feels like you're forgotten. Sometimes it feels like he's distant or his voice is hard to find. Anybody would slip up your hand and say, I just need some help with that. good. Thank you for your courage. All right, one more question. Then we're going to stand and close in the song. How many of you would say today, just in a moment of vulnerability, maybe you're saying, I know God is good, but sometimes I have a hard time feeling like I matter. Maybe your journey tonight is one of just struggling with the feeling of insignificance. I'm just going to invite you to raise your hand where you are. Just slip it up. Thank you. I see. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Thank you. Yep. It's a big one for people. It's a big one. Father, I pray for all those hands that were raised tonight. And I pray, Father, that that you would do something undeniable in their heart right now. Something that's supernatural. Something that that no class can teach them or no program can, can, can create in them that thing that only you can do as the creator of the universe. Father, I pray that you would give them a revelation of significance. That in this moment, even as we pray, that you would give them a revelation of significance. That something in their heart would turn. That something would soften. And they could feel that you would just, just give them a glimpse, God, of how much they matter to you. And Father, for the people that raised their hand that have been struggling with your goodness, I pray, Father, that, that in this moment that, that you would open up the eyes of their heart and that they could see how great and grand that you are. I pray that this week, for all of those people that raised their hand, I pray, Father, that they would be awakened to your presence like they never have before, and that your voice would be unmistakable and so loud to them that it would be deafening. Every day, God. Every day. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said, Amen. Hey, I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to close with a song. At the end of every service, we always have people on either side that are here to pray with you. If you want to come and kneel at the altar, you feel free to do that. That, that, that part of the wonder of this space that we're so excited about, is there's room here for you to have an encounter with God that can transform your life forever. Come on, let's worship him.